If you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the California Underground. I have with me gubernatorial candidate Renette Senum. Did I get that correct? I was practicing before. I nailed it. Okay, excellent. She is running for California governor. Primaries are only a couple days away, so we're going to talk about how important the primaries are. we got a lot to talk about. I was going over her site. She's got a lot of stuff to talk about. Very comprehensive. She knows her stuff. Um, one of the big things about her, she's running as a no-party preference, an independent. She is not a Democrat. She's not a Republican. And a lot of people were DMing me saying, you really need to talk to her. She's got a lot of great ideas. Uh, so I'm glad we were finally able to make this happen. Um, Renette, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Great. I'm doing great. Thank you. And that's a great opening. It's one of the better openings I've ever seen on an interview. Good job. No, oh, thanks. <laughs> well, you do enough of them. Hopefully you get better at them. Um, so let's start off with tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from. Um, I was looking over your page. You have a, a long timeline of sort of activism and community mm-hmm. engagement and involvement. Um, why don't we start there and talk about how you got involved, how you got to this point. So I'm actually currently right now in my hometown, Nevada City, California. I was raised in this county, Nevada County, California, since I was four. Lived in L.A. for eight years in Utah and Alaska, respectively. But I got engaged in community work. And um, in 2004, at the time, I was concerned with the state of the planet, which I laugh and say, well, it kind of looks like the good old days now. But um, I was really concerned about where we were going. And I thought, well, what can I do on one person? You know, How can I possibly do any good? And then I realized, well, I'll just focus on my own community, start in your own backyard. So I got very involved in building up resiliency and self-reliancy in this community. Uh, and then in, I was doing a lot of work with the city council, realizing they were very reactive rather than proactive. So in 2008, I decided to run for city council. And I got the most votes at the time, became the vice mayor the first year, the mayor the second year. It was a four-year term. And it was fantastic. I spent the that first four years being very proactive. Um, started the first organic farmer's market in the county. Started a extreme weather shelter for the homeless, uh, an, an advocacy organization for the homeless called Sierra Roots. Got solar on their city-owned buildings. Uh, just, you know, I was averaging about 2,000 hours a year in volunteer work. And even as mayor and, and council member, never got paid. We don't get paid. It's all volunteer. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was done. I was just trying to, you know, make a, a better world, starting with my own town. And then I got off the council, but I was still highly engaged. Um, and that time, really working towards um, kind of teaching people about the importance of a town square. We lost a lot of our town squares in America with the advent of a... Uh, highways. They went through cities and towns and took out town squares everywhere. And so we're really working on just kind of creating that sense of place in one of our more blighted uh, streets. And then as we approach 2016, we're getting a lot more outside um, threats. And that was like, you know, for the state, from our county, from uh, corporations. And uh, there's this one thing called Trans-Pacific Partnership that looked like it was going to be rolling in that Obama was pushing. That was just going to absolutely just eviscerate local control and authority and, and environmental protections and worker rights was not pretty at all. And so I want to jump back on the council because I knew that I knew how to stand my ground. I mean, I can go out there and I can model and I can lead and find creative solutions. I'm very good at that. But I can also get in the ring and I can fight and I can push back. And so I, I ran again. I, got, I was reelected in 2016. 
by that time, the world had changed a lot. It was really, uh, really much more intense, a lot more incoming missiles. Um, Paradise, not too far from us, burned down a few months after I was on the council. And, uh, you know, we're having a lot of issues with homeowners insurance policy cancellations and the rise of homelessness. And then Pacific Gas and Electric was taking down our power for days and days at a time and just destroying some businesses. And, and then I was mayor when COVID hit. And what happened was I was fine with the initial stay-at-home orders. Um, we're going only off of predictive models. That's all we had. I was encouraging people to wear masks until we know more. And then what happened was um, once we got beyond the predictive models and we began to look at actual data, it wasn't as bad as we originally thought. And by that time, we'd all been relegated to Zoom, you know, city council meetings. And we were having a weekly Zoom call with our county health departments, city and county officials. And at that point in time, when the data started to come in, I was like, well, hey, guys, this is good. It's not as bad as we thought it was going to be. And I started to notice that they were not adjusting their sales whatsoever. And I began to ask questions like, hey, uh, what's the goal here? What's What are we measuring? What's the metrics? Like, what's the end point? And finally, I was told by one of our doctors on the Zoom call that until we have zero cases, we could expect more of the same. And I said, when do we ever have zero cases of anything ever? Yeah. And uh, and so I was. it was starting to make my my stomach turned because I, I knew how government worked by that time. Uh, I knew it was kind of the normal protocol and there's just some really weird things happening. Then in June, Newsom did a statewide mass mandate. I was the only elected official in the whole entire state of California to call him out. Hmm. and say you do not have unilateral power to go out there and make laws. And this is a very slippery slope. We should all be alarmed. And it was just, I received the, the, the wrath of God. You know, LA Times, who I now know is uh, basically owned, and the San Diego Union Tribune, too, are both is owned by the same person who's basically a CCP foot soldier. Um, Soon, Soon Siang is his name. And uh, the SF Gate and SACB just eviscerated me, you know, saying I was saying masks don't work. I'm like, I'm not talking about the efficacy of masks. I'm talking about the the power of the governor and what he can and cannot do. And so finally, um, and it was now July. I had just won my third election. I'm ready to step down and take oath for the third term. And my partner, Susan, of 14 years was saying, are you going to be able to do this? You know, and I said to her, I said, I don't know how I'm going to be able to shut up because I'm seeing a lot of disturbing things and this is not okay with me. And I know who I am and I know I'm not going to just shut up, and just go along to get along. So instead of taking the oath, I stepped down in July of 2020, 2020. And I actually called my city council out for committing crimes against humanity. I'm like, look at, I've got this information, you've got this information, and yet you continue to do what you're doing and you're actually causing harm. And I called them out and the only thing by then that I could think to do was to start my own YouTube channel called Renette Sons Chew on this and bring these different respective experts in their fields, you know, virologists, epidemiologists, OSHA experts to talk about and share the information the public was not getting. And that's what the, that is the role of an elected official is to keep the public informed. That's what they should be doing. So I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do is I'm going to do that and and not bring the heat onto my city hall staff. So not being on the council any longer gave me the ability to do that. Then I was on Del Big Trees, the high wire. And when that happened, uh, you know, people across the state, because it was right when the recall was getting going, like, hey, you should run for governor. And I was like, I'm not running for governor. That is never happening. And what happened was I continued to watch Newsom, what he was doing, what the elected officials weren't. Nobody was questioning him. Nobody was uh, questioning the, the narrative Nobody was pointing out, we were trying to get the vital statistics, the raw data that was now closed down to the public, which was completely illegal. And the, the ones who were asking me to, to run, I finally said, look at this whole governorship, you know, 
I'm willing to run, but um, there's two, you know, two requirements. First of all, I'm not going to do just more of the same. You got plenty of candidates for that. But I will do is I want to run with no party affiliation. I've been a no party affiliate candidate for almost 10 years. Um, it was just something I just started to do. And I said, so no party affiliation because I cannot serve the people in the party simultaneously. Both parties are equally, equally um, uh, completely controlled by big corporate money. And the next thing is, as I said, you know, I've been in the trenches for almost 20 years and I've been asking, like, what's our goal as a society? You know, what are we leaving behind for our children? And how do I measure my leadership and the decisions I'm making? And I said, what I'd like to do is actually fold in what's called the seventh generation principle, which is every decision we make today should serve seven generations from now. And that actually comes from, amazingly enough, it actually comes from our constitution. It ends up that the uh, six nations of the Iroquois Confederacy inspired our forefathers into writing this thing called the constitution. But there's these two important components they left out of this incredible vessel. One was the anchor, the other was the compass. And the compass was a seven generation principle. The anchor were our elders. They had this, you know, a, a, a circle, a, a committee of, of elder, you know, women, essentially, grandmothers. And um, rather than we today, you know, sending our elders off to nursing homes, they used to fold the the wisdom in of the of the wisdom in of the elders from the last few generations to ensure for the next seven. And so this campaign is very much about the seventh generation principle. It is very much about uh, you know those intergenerational connections, and it's also about an economy based upon uh, restoration and healing. And so at that time, as you may know, on my website there is a almost thirty page contract with Californians. It is a blueprint for California. It is a pathway forward. I'm the only candidate that has anything like it. And the reason why I did that is because I wanted, um, I didn't want to pull a Pelosi where you have to vote for the bill in order to find out what's in it. I wanted people to know who are you voting for, right? I'm going to just lay it out there. And this, um, this contract with Californians is a living document, which means it's never static. I've been up and down the state thousands of miles, up and down for months and months. And so the brilliant ideas, the concepts, the models, the, the, the experts, we've just been folding that into the contract. And there's more to come, actually. And um, and so this is where we are today. And so I've been up and down the state. And I have to say that we are less divided than people realize. There's a rule of thumb. 80% of people agree with 90% of the issues. We are experiencing that is the truth. And uh, no matter what, I've told people, it does not matter the outcome of this election. This campaign has been created in such a way it supersedes election cycles. This is about creating a cultural, even spiritual shift within California and how we show up in our leadership. So no matter what happens, uh, this campaign is actually going to continue. And we can get into that later. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. You brought up a lot of stuff. And just for geography's sake, Nev- let's see if I can point it out. Nevada City is like up in like this area. Yeah, right, right yeah you look more towards Tahoe. So it's above, it's like it's uh, northeast. Yeah, right up there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, I had to look it up because it is one of those cities that um, – you know, California is so big, we often forget that there is a large amount of people who live outside of the bubbles, the city, the urban bubbles of, I I mean, I live in San Diego, so I'm in one of the three bubbles, San Diego, LA, San Francisco, it's always those three bubbles seem to determine so much of politics in California. But there is just an enormous amount of land and people out there in California in terms of variety I'm looking out at your behind you in the you have beautiful greenery and trees behind you down here in the desert. It's completely different scenery. Um, and, and I think that's something that's overlooked in California politics is that 
there is a large swath of citizenry, citizenry and diversity in this state that it's not just what the hipsters are saying down in an L.A. coffee shop. We have to talk about the farmers. We have to talk about people who live in the state of Jefferson, as people like to call it. People who live in the Inland Empire. There's a lot of diversity. And I feel like a lot of those voices go unheard. And there is a lot of frustration in California. If we just feel like we're not represented because the cities kind of control California. Well, the cities, and to be honest, even more so the the, the legislators, the lobbyists, the corporations. You know, yeah. I mean, we blame it on the cities and the voting. But the truth of the matter is a lot of the legislation that's pushed through does not even represent the people in the cities at all. Yeah. Right. They yeah. might vote a certain way. But then you have the legislators coming in. And while we're over here, the legislators are making decisions and writing bills over here. So, um, you know, when it comes down to it, first of all, I love the diversity of California. And I don't care if you're a Republican or from the Jefferson state or the state of Jefferson <laughs> or, um, you know, you're, uh, you know, a Latino or, you know, gay. I'm you know a gay woman, been in a relationship for 14 years with my partner, Susan. I love the diversity of California. This is what makes us so beautiful and strong. And but the, the truth is, is that that 80 percent of people agree on 90 percent of the, the issues is very true. And really what people want is they want to know they can pay their bills. They can put food on the table. Their children have a good education. They're safe in their communities. They have clean, you know, and access to clean water and, and food and soil and air. And and that's not that's about it. You know, I mean, we don't really want a lot. We just like to go about our lives and know we're going to be OK. And so. Because I've been up and down the state, I've been talking to all these different people and I love and I'm I'm a good talker, but I can also listen really well and I know how to put it into motion. And as you could probably see on my electronet.com page, there's my service. You'll see I've done a lot. And this is, you know, just I listen and I go and I try to clear the path from point A to point B. And so what we did is with this contract with Californians, we looked at the biggest um, challenges facing California and we turned them into our biggest opportunities. So this blueprint is really laying out a, um, a an economy based upon restoration and healing. And that means rebuilding the topsoil, which is huge. It is mm-hmm. it sounds like 80 percent of our environmental issues, rebuilding our topsoil. Right. You you actually allow the, the rainwater to be collected into the aquifers and they recharge. It re- rebuilds the topsoil or the uh, pollinator population. It makes more nutritionally dense food, um, you know, also reduces catastrophic fires. The list goes on. Um, so it's rebuilding our topsoil, rebuilding a pollinator, ensuring that we can transfer a lot of our big ag to more regenerative farming, uh, expand and also ensure legacy farms and ranches, make sure we have actually intelligent and fair and equitable water distribution. And, you know, so it's really the objective is to actually take those threats and work them to our benefit. And then, which is my favorite part, is many people will say, well, how do you pay for this? Well, it ends up that I was looking at, of course, public banks. And that's been on the, the board of, uh, you know, the, the table for discussion for a long time. And I found out that California does have a public bank called the Infrastructure Bank, the iBank. And it's for infrastructure jobs, like bridges and levees and, and roads and so on. But it's underutilized and it's really more like a slush fund for our politicians. And I realized that if we were really smart, we could actually expand the charter of this bank. And we can actually expand it to enjoy to actually, you know, for for mom and pop businesses, main street businesses, small to large manufacturing. And the beauty of this is that rather than us going to big banks and Wall Street to print the, the dollars to make the loans, we're doing it as a state and we're keeping hundreds of millions of dollars in interest rates within the state and the local economies. But this is my favorite part is what we can do 
is we can use that infrastructure bank and we can incentivize the seventh generation principle. We can incentivize regenerative farming and being kinder to the planet and ensuring that our resources are there for generations to come. And we can do that in a way where we create a, a, a list of criteria, right? A list of criteria where the more you check off, the lower your interest rates. So, okay, you want to have manufacturing, you want to, want to have a farm. All right, make sure that your buildings are energy efficient. They're doing, you know, gray water systems, um, recycling their water. Uh, it could be also ensuring that you're rebuilding your topsoil, planting pollinator plants and flowers. Um, you know, if you're a farmer, you're transitioning from, from kind of the big ag practices to the regenerative farming. And so, and the more you check off those lists, right, the, the, those items on the list, the lower your interest rate. So it's not like we're forcing it down your throat, but we're incentivizing it. People love that. They love the idea that we are the ones lending the money. We're the ones keeping the interest rate dollars, you know, here. And we're also doing uh, in such a way that we're incentivizing uh, a really beautiful planet for, you know, future generations to come. Uh, two things I want to kind of touch upon, and um, I think they're both important points, is you, you brought up this idea that 80% of the people really agree on a lot of these, what I call kitchen table politics. Um, I actually just did a live for Coffee in California Politics. I think it was not this past week, but two weeks ago. And the title of it was, We're Not As Different As People Think We Are. Um, I had gone up to San Francisco that weekend prior, uh, staying with a friend of my wife's. Um, and my wife told me, she said, you know, don't, don't get into politics because, you know, you guys are on like opposite ends of the spectrum. So don't talk to, talk to her about politics. Um, and we, you know, for most of the time, we just chatted. We we had a great time. We had a lot of things in common. We did veer into politics at some point, but it turned out we actually had a lot of things in common. And there was a lot of this common ground of we're we're tired of the political class and we're tired of the political elite. And remember, at one point, she said, "I just want politicians to do what's best for California," <laughs> and I'm tired of seeing just big money run Sacramento and all this stuff. And it's stuff that I think everybody can get behind. And it's funny because if you just kind of put these two people in a room, you'd say, oh, there's, there's no way these two would ever see eye to eye on anything. But when you kind of break it down and get down to it, there is this common ground that I think a lot of Californians are really gravitating towards. And if we just start to talk to each other, there will be, more progress it's almost like they don't want people to talk no. in california just no. keep it sectioned it's it's an illusion the, the the this illusion that we're separated is absolutely just not true and, mm -hmm. and, and and so okay so let's talk about this is really important so let's talk about why is it that this this just keeps reoccurring over and over we get these elected officials that rep represent us so there's a whole host of reasons that i've now been seeing firsthand it's like wow what an eye-opener so first and foremost, the primary election, which is coming up on June 7th, you know, we have the mail-in ballots, you know, for 30 days, you can, you know, you have time to mail it in. I recommend do not mail in your ballots. Go to your elections office if you can, drop them off. Don't drop them off in boxes on the streets or the corners. Those are actually owned by corporations. Crazy. But Shocker. drop them off. But understand that we have come to, 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 to believe that the general election is the most important election out of the two, the primary, which is there's 26 candidates. It's open primary. You can vote for any candidate of your preference. does not matter the party. And the top two vote getters then move on to the general election in November. And we always think that the general election is the most important election, but that's not true. The die is cast by the time you, you, you get through that primary election. And what we now know is that, like, for instance, in the 2018 election, 
Um, there's 20, there's 40 million Californians, 22 million of them are registered. And in that 2018 election, only 7 million voted hmm. out of the, okay. I mean, only seven, uh, I, I see a 7 million, right? And so 15 million people just didn't, just didn't vote in the primary thinking it wasn't important. And what's really fascinating is only 2.3 million voted for Newsom. 2.3 yeah. million people voted for Newsom out of 40 million people out of 22 yeah. million registered voters. So we think he's like, there's like a mandate. People love him. Uh-uh. And that was at the height of his, his popularity. So the thing is though, is that what happens in the primary, and this is important. The media gives it very little coverage. There's a reason they want you disenfranchised. They don't want you informed. They want you to say, I don't know. It's too big. I don't know who the candidates are. It's too much for me. And what happens is that it's the extreme left and right who generally vote in the primary. They're the ones hitting and setting the ball up at the net. So here you have the two extremes on either side, they're the ones who generally vote in the primary. Then those 80 percenters we've been talking about, here comes the general election. It's now November and they're looking at the two candidates and they're like, this is it. I, I have to, again, have to pick the lesser of two evils. These are the two candidates. And it's like, well, why? It's like, why? Because you didn't vote in the primary. Why did you vote in the primary? Because the media is not really letting you know. And when the media does let you know, they do it in such a way like, ah, Newsom's in. He's a shoe and he's got no competition. Ah, yeah, there's an election, but ah, Newsom's got it again. So they just play disenfranchise people from voting, and that is by design. Yeah, that's such a such an important point. I, I've said that numerous times, and I, I always tell my listeners, I always say, look, if you're tired of your choices and you think it's always the same people, or uh, you wonder why you get to the general and go, oh, you know why? You know, I only have two Democrats to pick from. Why do I always have two Democrats to pick from? Well, because you probably fell asleep at the wheel during the primaries. And you have no idea who's running and you have no idea. You didn't choose who your ideal candidate was in the beginning. And that's sort of incumbent on you as a voter to fall that you fell asleep at the wheel. And now you have these two awful choices and you're kind of you think it's the system. You think it's this two party system, uh, which in a way it is. I mean, you, you have the Democrats and you have the Republicans. They endorse their candidates. Uh, I saw a poll from the L.A. Times just today. I said. You know, but right behind Newsom is Brian Dolly, who got endorsed by the California GOP. He's, of course, got 10 percent. He's the only other person with double digits. Um, and so he'll, you'll likely get these two choices. And But in reality, it's like if you were paying attention during the primaries, you could radically change it. Um, and it doesn't have to be these two choices. And it doesn't even have to be Gavin Newsom if it was that no, right. If, no, it does it could not. Be, the top two choices without Gavin Newsom. And, and I have to tell you something. Okay, so this is the thing. If a Republican wins, makes it through the primary, with let's say along with Newsom, they've actually handed the general election and the next four years over to Newsom. He's won. Mm -hmm. Dolly doesn't have a chance in hell of making it. Mm -hmm. He is the establishment. He is a Republican. He is, he is, he's just more of the same, actually. Both Newsom and he are more of the same, but Newsom's got the whole Pelosi family and so on, right? He's, he's actually a little bit more crazy. Um, but it's, it's, it's not going to work. And the thing is, is that people have to understand is when I hear say, well, my vote doesn't count. It's just being rigged anyway. It's like, well, look at it. If you don't vote, you have to understand the fewer people who vote, the easier it is to rig. And that's why the media doesn't want you voting in the primary because it's really easy to finagle an election if few people vote, right? If you have, 2,000 people voting, uh, uh, instead of, let's say, having, you know, uh, 10 million people voting, right? It's easy to, to jerry-rig with a fewer votes. So it's really a, it's a setup for failure. And the other thing is it's really important that I say to people, 
and this includes Dolly, this includes Newsom, this includes the other top contenders, is that you've got to look to see who their donors are. Um, and that even now, that even goes for a declined list, declined to state candidate. Um, before, the big money was always in left and right, but now they're actually investing in a particular uh, candidate right now, big political big corporate money because they realize that people are in the middle and they're pissed off with both sides. For the first time, corporate money has now inf infiltrated the decline to state, the, the no party affiliate you know, candidate. Um, so I say to people, look it, it's worth your time to go onto votersedge.org and actually look at the candidates to see who their top donors are, do a little Googling. Um, you know, you can kind of see who's got the most, you know, like the top five, six candidates, see who's got, um, you know, the, the most endorsements, look behind to see who who's the money behind the endorsements, who what, who what media outlet is giving them coverage, who is the money behind the media outlet. And people are like, well, I don't have time for this. I'm like, well, I, you may not have time for this, but you don't realize the hell you're going to go through for the next four years if we continue doing more of the same. And right now, as it currently stands, you know, this is this is the most important election in the state of California. And luckily with my campaign, we've got a plan B. We've known from the get-go this probably would be the case with all this money infiltration and and the candidates playing certain roles and stuff. And in an illusion of choice. It's an illusion of choice. Because right now, to tell you something, I have never in my life seen the censorship like I'm seeing here and experiencing every single day of this campaign. We're getting more and more ratcheted. It really started on January 10th where they took down my Instagram account for no reason, no warning. Just my, you know, my actual campaign account took it down. But now what's happening is that they are absolutely, you can't post my posts. You can't share them off my social media, most of them. Many times they don't work. The hashtags don't work. Uh, we also now have been telling people, like, when they put something up and they share it in the stories or whatever, they're taken down within a few hours. Uh, we also know for a fact that, amazingly, uh, somebody told us they were on the AOL chat room, which I did not know existed, and they put my name, not a link, not my website, but my name, and this, you've, you've, you've violated community standards because of my name. Now what's happening is that we've even gone to the Secretary of State to get the voter rolls, right? Is, is we paid for them. It's available to us. We've never gotten them. The voter rolls are so we can actually go out there and communicate with all the voters. They're not sending it to us. My favorite part is that we've gone to Facebook and Google for weeks and weeks and weeks now saying, hey, we'd like to do some political ads, please. And they're like, oh, we don't do political ads. We're like, uh, yes, you do. We're seeing uh, Newsom's, we're seeing Schellenberger's, we're seeing Tremino's. You do political ads, but they're not letting us, they're not letting us do Tremino, uh, you know, or doing uh, political ads. And now what's happening, and this is amazing, is uh, in the last uh, week or so, we have attempted as we've done in the past, to use what's called Clavio. It's an email service, right? And now even a Microsoft Office uh, email service. And a few days ago, we sent out 30,000 emails, 15, not 15,000, 15 emails got out. We can't send them out. We've now done a different email software. We're not allowed to send out emails to voters. Hmm. The This is like, this is like communism. This is like, this is like CCP kind of, of, of censorship. This is, I don't care if you're left or right, whatever you are, everybody should be equally, equally concerned because I say to people, how could you possibly have a fair and equitable election if you can't do for the candidates to begin with? And so there has been a clear assault on this campaign to absolutely silence us. So now we've resorted to 50 digital billboards around uh, Southern California and the Bay Area to say, you know, who is Renette Senum? The media hates her, the people love her. 
why aren't you hearing from Renette Senum, the most censored candidate, which is true. I'm pretty sure I'm probably the most censored candidate out there. And I know why, because I have a 20 year track record. I've been an elected official, but not a career politician. I never got paid. I'm a solutionary and I find solutions. I know I have experience testifying before the Congress and Assembly, calling out corruption, pushing back, um, you know, and I, I know politics. You know, I've been in this fight for a long time and I have solutions. I actually have a blueprint for California, a tangible, this is the way forward. So no doubt there's a reason why they're, they're censoring me, but we should be highly, highly alarmed that a candidate such as myself can be silenced like this. And isn't it ironic that the open primary, the jungle primary, as they call it, was passed because they believed it would be better for people to have choice and allow people to choose whoever they want. It should just be the top two. Before it was the and, top three. Mm -hmm. Well, now it's just the top two. And yeah. now it's gotten to a point where you don't really get a choice of the top two. You get a choice of the same party most of the time it's you get a choice of two democrats yeah. or you get a choice of a democrat and possibly a republican who's going to get blown out 70 to 30 uh, it's not even going to be a race so it, it's almost like they passed this open primary under the guise of progressivism um, and actually i'm reading a really interesting book right now by murray rothbard called the progressive era and how they passed a lot of this progressive um these progressive policies to expand the power of the state and the power of the corporate power uh, in conjunction with each other, corporatism. Um, and now we're basically just getting a one party state. We're not getting choice. We're getting a one party state of you can choose from Democrat who is very, very radical left, or you can choose from Democrat who is a few ticks maybe to the right or the establishment Republican who was endorsed by the California GOP. So I find that ironic and, and people like yourself can't don't have that ballot or, or they just don't have that access to get out there and get their voice heard. No, and because and, 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 the media is colluding 100 percent. And I'll give you an example. Um, so you got social media, you got the technocrats, then uh, and they're all they're all in collusion because they're all you know, they're all paying Paul and Peter and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and they're lobbying for each other. And I mean, it's just all patting each other on the back. It's one big happy club. But. The San Diego Tribune a, a couple of weeks ago, I put in um, a Q&A answers that they were asking from candidates. There was six of us out of 26 who did this. And the, the uh, Sun Siong, who is the, um, Patrick Sun Siong, who is a uh, owner of the San Diego Union Tribune, also owns the LA Times, has a very murky past. Uh, I have no doubt he's a CCP foot soldier, no doubt. We should be really concerned about that in Southern California. Yeah. And what happened is the LA Times just a couple of few days ago came out with, oh, these are the top four most active candidates. And it was Schellenberger, Tremino, Sean Collins, and Jenny, uh, Jenny Ray LaRue. And, and they just absolutely kept me out. And I'm like, you can't say that I'm not active. I guarantee you I'm even more active than the four there, but they're, it's like a psychological warfare. What they did was in San Diego, they let us be there because they're more conservative. They're not too worried about the liberals. But then what they did is they made sure that they, they had a lot more conservative people with Schellenberger, um, to kind of, scare the, the liberals into voting. Like, oh my gosh, we have all these Republicans, all these conservatives, we gotta go out there, we gotta vote, you know? And they completely ignored me. And so there's no doubt that they're absolutely in cahoots. There's no reason for not to have included me. Cause I mean, I've I've been out there, big events, small events, you name it, I, you know, radio shows, podcasts like this. I mean, hundreds and hundreds. And once again, it's just a censorship, but let me tell you something. We knew this was gonna happen. 
many, many months ago, I was saying, we're talking back in November, December, January, people were saying, Renette, who's your biggest competition? I said, my competition is not a person. It's a thing. It's called censorship. I know what's going to happen because I know who I am. I know how the media treats me. I've been through this for a long, long time. So we created this campaign in such a way. It's our success is not incumbent upon winning a possibly rigged or highly influenced election. What we're going to do after this election, if I don't get in through the primary, is we're going to turn this campaign into a political pack. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go out there because we have this incredible, incredible base right now of volunteers who are on the ground right now as I speak, promoting with banners over overpasses of highways right now. They know the long game. We've shared it with them. And what we're going to do is we're going to take that contract with Californians that I have. We're going to take key pieces that are really, really important. And we're going to go out there and we're going to, we're going to return the power to the people to the California voters, because the legislators are over here serving the big money and the lobbyists. What we're going to do is take certain pieces of this contract with Californians, and we're going to actually, with in mind that seven generation principle, that's the goal, and we're going to put out a series of referendums of, of voter ballot initiatives, propositions that we, the voters, get to vote on, not the legislators. They don't author the bill. They don't water it down. They don't put little earmarks in there, little things, you know, under the hood that you don't know about. So after the fact, it's actually going to be voter driven. And the objective is to actually create a system that serves us now. We get to vote on it. And it also serves seven generations from now. And that's what this campaign is about. This election cycle is just to me, almost like a footnote. It is just a one step to a much larger step. Our objective is to actually create a cultural shift and an absolute movement, not just throughout the state of California, but throughout the whole entire United States. Uh, I wanted to talk about that, this idea of the seven, seven generations. Um, it's an interesting idea. I never heard of it before. And I think it's something that we are as a society guilty of in terms of people always say, well, how did we get here? You know, they always say, well, well, how did this happen? How did we get here? A lot of times it's because people in generations don't think far beyond mm -hmm. this year and maybe next year or and, today <laughs> or today. And in today's, you know, instant gratification world, it's could be in the next hour. People don't really care down the line. And, and this sort of frog in the boiling water where it just slowly but surely things change. And before you know it, you look 20 years back and go, man, 20 years ago was really great and everything was better and, and we used to be able to do this and our community was well knit and, you know, these things all worked. Why don't they work anymore? Again, because you probably fell asleep at the wheel or you voted for politicians who were only advertising for problems that are right now and not thinking in the future. Mm -hmm. And California is a good example. And reservoirs and water are definitely a good example in my mind i've said that why aren't we creating reservoirs and storing enough for five years why are we storing barely enough for maybe a couple months if things get hairy or go sideways we don't have that foresight in california to be like these bad things happen natural things happen there's not much we can do storms happen and all that fires happen but we could be better prepared for it and we could better prepare for people down the line so that when it does happen, they'll say, oh, thank God, somebody thought about this five, ten years ago. So, um, right. Yeah, right. And, and, and the thing is, is that, that that's the case, but there's no incentive for that. So no. especially from our politicians, because that's not that's not not that's not why they're elected. They're not there to 
to serve something later. They're there to serve themselves, you know, and most of them I think are kind of psychopaths and sociopaths and egomaniacs. And so the objective is to, you know, my objective was to create a base of incredible people who understand it's very diverse, politically, race, age, you name it. Um, and the objective was to create this incredible base, which we've been able to do. And this is the beauty of COVID. COVID has actually afforded us the ability to go out there. And as a candidate, I before COVID, I, there'd be nowhere to go. You got the Republicans, the Democrats, you know, the DNC, the RNC, and that would be it. Well, because of COVID, there's all these, you know, medical freedom groups and liberty groups and concerned parents and teachers and and community members, and they're opening up their living rooms and their backyards and their restaurants, and we're all meeting. And so I've been able to go out there as a no party affiliate. I mean, with everyone across all the divides and build up this incredible base. It's an amazing asset that we've established in a matter of just five months. They know the long game. The long game I just shared with you, they're all privy to that. They know what we're doing. So they know, yeah, I'm trying to get elected, but we know if I don't, it might be better than I'm not because we actually have a better plan. We're gonna go over here and we're gonna actually exhaust all avenues. And if we can't do that, then we're gonna actually hand the power back to the people and we're gonna write the legislation. We're gonna vote on it. And it's not, and the other thing that's really distinctively different about this campaign is when we had other referendums in the past, they're kind of are like one over here, one over here, but they were never, there was never a series of referendums all pointing towards the same goal. Yeah. And that same goal is that seven generation principle. And it's always out there. The seven generation principle is always seven generations. But that just kind of tells us which way we need to, you know, you know, turn on the bow of our boat towards. And, mm -hmm. and then we can, you know, all tack our own way and we're all tacking towards the same shore. We can kind of get out of each other's business stop the micromanaging, reduce the red tape and everything. It's like, no, we as a culture are going to do our best to get to that seven generation, you know, sure. And, and I have to tell you, people are ready for it. They're yeah. ready. They're done. Yeah. It's one of the silver linings of COVID that I've said before is that we have this window, especially in California, we have this, this sort of window that's closing with every day because people get more apathetic and as COVID sort of goes into the background, people get more apathetic and go back to their nonchalant ways that they don't care what's going on. But we do have this window of people who were woken up out of COVID. Uh, when I first started this podcast and I said, I'm going to talk about California politics, just California politics. I had a, a smattering of people who were interested. They were like, ah, oh, you, you got your political wonks and your nerds who were interested. COVID exploded in terms of people who were looking and searching for news and information about California politics. They were now engaged. They're asking me questions. What do I do about school board? Should I run? Somebody actually said, based on your podcast, I decided to run for school board mm -hmm. because I said I want to get involved. So there is this window that is kind of closing that we have to kind of take advantage of while there still is political activism, like you're saying, with all these groups that are engaged, they're organizing, they're all over the place. Um, I mean, there's so many here in San Diego. I feel like there's a whole bastion of them down here in San Diego. Freedom Revival, San Diego Rise Up, Let Them Breathe, a whole bunch of them. Um, and they're all taking on different causes, which is great. And they're all organizing, but they all work together still as like this big web of like, you know, this org is talking to this org and they're planning out stuff and then they get a big thing going and it just kind of all melts together. Is that what sort of you're talking about? Well, yeah, it is. You know, I, I do think there's been a lot of infiltration, though. I have to tell you, I've seen a lot of infiltration of um, the evangelical churches into the medical freedom. And and I support people's religions. I will fight alongside the evangelical churches and those who have this religion because 
that's the beauty of America. We have the right to have our own beliefs. But there's been also a little bit of a divide and a wedge going in there. And so um, people are kind of trying to force their own will and beliefs on others. And this might go back to look at guys. We're never going to agree on everything. We all have the right to have our own different, different opinions and religions. And once again, I'm saying instead of sitting there and having to convince each other, I'm right, you're wrong. Let's just, you know, readjust the direction of our boat and look at that seven generation principle and then apply it according to your life, to your beliefs, okay. right? To whatever it is, your community. Um, but the thing is this, is that from what I can tell is going to happen is that more than likely we're going to end up with more of the same unless people show up and vote. So I'm going to go do a plea right now to everyone out there. We're expecting 15 million people not to vote in the primary. And when things go awry, it's because you didn't vote in the primary. So I'm going to ask every one of you who's like, I don't vote primaries. I don't vote at all. Please vote. Take your ballot. So fill it out. And then if you can't fill out all of it, at least do the, the governor race, right? And then drop it off at your election site, your, your polling site. But the thing is this, is that it is so important that people vote right now and get engaged right now, because from what I can tell, if we don't, we're going to have a lot more suffering. Hmm. And I think that what's happened is that we haven't suffered enough. People are like, ah, eh, they're kind of getting by enough. It's not that bad. So I think we're going to actually have to go feel some more pain for people to really, really wake up. Well, the good news is this many, many years ago when, um, uh, I was working on the resiliency and sustainability in my community. Somebody came up to me and they said, Renette, how are you going to convince everyone to go sustainable? I was like, I'm not convincing anyone to go sustainable, but we have to be ready when people don't have an option any longer. And there's another thing I want to share with people that's really important is that many years ago in 2011, there was a documentary called Thrive from Foster Gamble. And he was talking about this moment where he heard some really scary news about aerial spraying that was happening over the Bay Area. And he said to his wife, you know, how do I broach this topic with the public without freaking them out and, you know, just making them close down? And she said, well, this is what you do, dear. First, you say, oh, look at that bowl of fresh, cool water. And oh, by the way, your hair's on fire. <laughs> so my point is this, is that I believe people really do know that they're on a sinking Titanic and it's getting bad, but you know, they're not slipping down the deck fast enough for them to really like do something about it. And they just don't know what to do, but what's going to happen is they're going to realize more and more over time. Cause it's going to continue. This is a war. We're in a war. This is world war three. I'm not going to mince any words. It's a very silent, very sophisticated psychological operation. And the thing is, is that as, as people are sort of slide off that, that deck of the Titanic, it's got to be our job to take that life raft and, you know, dock it next to the side of the boat so they can jump. Because once they see the life raft, they're going to jump. And that's what the seventh generation principle is. That's what these referendums are going to be. This is going to be the life raft. So I think what's going to happen at this point in time, from what I can tell, people are going to have to feel more pain. And it's like, oh my God, it's not, it's like, no, this is, it's, this is a, we're, we're in a long game here. This is a long haul. This has been building up for generations. This is not going to just, it's not going to just flip with one, one election anyway. It's not one election. It's not going to save us. One governor is not going to save us. I've always said that. If you think one governor is going to save you, you're delusional. This is all hands on deck. And if I can't yep. beat captain the boat by the, through the primary, then we're going to do it through the referendum system. Yeah, that's something I always tell my listeners as well, is they always think, oh, you know, it's going to go one way or the other in one election. It's going to save everybody. And I'm like, it's not. Even yeah. if the recall happened and you installed whoever, uh, Larry Elder or Anthony Tremino or any of those guys, it wouldn't have saved California. It would have just stalled whatever action maybe for a little bit longer. Yeah, maybe. It really, it really 
we really we really need the people, right? And and we've got to do it in a different way, right? Just more of the same is not going to do it. You know, going out there and letting the legislators author bills that we don't like and then us going down to Sacramento and protesting against it over is not going to it's not going to do it. It's like we have to take the reins. And our our legislators are authoring bills that we don't like. In fact, not only do we not like them, we think they're freaking insane. They're insane yeah. bills. They're crazy. It's like what master are you guys serving? It's not us. It's not your oath of office. So the objective is in not every state has the luxury that we have, which is the referendums. And so the objective is like, okay, let's take what we have and let's be really, really smart with it. Yeah. And priorities as well. I mean, you look at some of these bills that they author, you know, people are suffering from high gas prices and Senator Scott Wiener authored a bill or introduced a bill making it allowable for Bay Area restaurants and nightclubs to stay open until 4 a.m. I guess that's a priority of Again, that goes down to this. A small portion of California is trying to rule over or, or well, and, make and laws for everybody else. It's laughable because the thing is, is that actually our culture has shifted a lot since COVID. I've talked to bar owners and restaurant owners and bars and restaurants are closing down earlier than ever before, even in the cities, because we've been so trained to stay home. Right. Mm. And not go out there. We're not we're not closing the bars down like we used to. You know, two o'clock and the bar's empty. So I don't why <laughs> who can we gotta keep the bars open till four. Oh, okay, so that's a priority. I mean, who comes up with these things? It's just it's just so arbitrary. So there is a question that just popped in, and this is a question I often get when I tell people to vote, is how do you convince the my vote doesn't count crowd to actually vote? Well, it's pretty simple. I mean, really it comes down to explain to them the primaries, how the primaries work. How when they think that, you know, oh, Newsom, you don't have a chance against Newsom. He actually won at the height of his popularity with only 2.3 million votes out of 22 million. And if you don't vote, you're actually setting us up for a rigged election. You are setting us up for, for someone out there and, you know, doing things they shouldn't. So I go back to that's, that's why the, the media are, they're complicit. In, in not letting you know about the primary because they don't want you voting. They want the extremes so that when it comes time in the general, the die's been cast. So what I've discovered is that when we tell people that A, Newsom did not win with the mandate, he got a tiny a fraction of, of the, the, the voters. This is the most important primary. It's more important than the general. And if you don't vote, it's much easier to rig. People are like, what? I didn't know that. So it's really, it's about educating, educating people. So I want to, shift now to kind of taking your seven generation principle mm -hmm. and talk about applying it to some of your issues. You have a lot of issues mm -hmm. here on your site, but I want to touch upon a couple of them. Uh, let's start off with one of the biggest ones, especially that came out of COVID is education. So how do we prepare California for seven generations when it comes to education? Well, first and foremost, we have to understand the history of public education and know that there are a lot of beautiful things do come out of education, but the system was originally designed by the Carnegies and the uh, Rockefellers for, for basically two goals was to remove all dissent from the individual and the possibility of dissent and also to remove the originality. They wanted a, an unquestioning workforce period. And so that's where it started. Now, ever since then, though, education has even declined more and more over time. And, and now we don't have music, right? We don't have the physical education that we used to have. We don't have, you know, like home economics, how to learn how to make things, fix things, create things like mechanical, electrical, carpentry, all these different things, right? Um, it's all about standardized tests, you know, standardized tests. 
And it's not about making better humans. So what we want to do is we want, we want to bring back the humanity into the education system, right? So first and foremost, most children, whether you want to admit it or not, have some form of trauma or some struggle because of the last two years. Some are worse than others, depending on a whole host of different reasons. But what we need to do is just re just remove standardized testing, at least for the next two years, if not forever. They're, they're, they're a big money-making scheme that only stresses children out and is not actually reflective of their education, who they are, and how well they're advancing. So there's that. We need to bring back the trades. We need to bring back how so children know how to make things and fix things and not be so hyper-focused on, oh, you got to go and get the master's degree. Oh, you got to go off and seek higher education, spend tens of thousands of dollars. Now we know what happens. We have all these young people, young adults, who are now living in their parents' home with this huge student loan debt that was going to be forgiven by Biden. Instead, they're getting, you know, you know, the crack pipes. And the objective is say, look, you guys, we need to bring the trades back. You need to be, you need to know how to make things and fix things and use your hands. It's actually a very respectable field, you know? And so bring that back. And the other thing is too, is get the children off the screens. Screens are not a great way to learn. It, the, the, the lessons don't stick. Actually, these screens are very unhealthy for young people. Their eyes, the radio frequencies, the emissions that come off are very bad, especially for developing bodies. Get the children more physical education, get them outside, outdoors more, right? And also let's lower the ad, the administrative cost. Most of money that goes to the schools is going to administration. And then really allow, really allow a school choice, whether it's school, little, little pods, little, you know, um, homeschooling, public school, private school, parents more than anyone else know their children, right? Um, than anyone. And, and we need to let the parents actually pick or let the children pick for themselves. And so really the objective here right now is to simply make better humans at the end of 12 years. So it comes down to, and I agree with that, the public education has become a lot of just grinding people through, and especially with the no child left behind, a lot of these standardized testing. It's basically just numbers, and it's not about really how much useful knowledge you learn. It's how much you can fill out a bubble and just regurgitate information. Yeah, it, it really, it, it's, it's, a, it's, been a, it's been a pipeline uh, for the student. It's been a pipeline to indebtedness. Yeah. Especially right. with colleges, I, I think um, if I could do it all over again, I don't know if I would have gone to a four-year college if there were other options such as if you could go to like a free trade school. Um, I think that should be vocational schools. Should what? There should be an incentive to send people to vocational schools, have the state pay for them. I'm right. all for that. Right. Um, it needs to be more hands-on. And bring back, you know, music, art, theater. This stimulates the brain. It's great for, for development and education, right? We know this, music especially. And bring back some cursive writing, for God's sake. I, I mean, the fact that children not only know how to write cursive, they don't even know how to write a word, many of them, or finish a sentence by the time they graduate from high school. How can this even be happening these days? So, uh, you know, I have to be honest. <laughs> when I look at our world, we're pretty much in a relationship crisis with everything around us. And we've got these middlemen everywhere. They're in our banking system, our food, our education, even our religion. Our There's middlemen everywhere. And we need to get rid of the middlemen, right? And just bring it back home. Make it as local and regional as possible. Bring that power back and the authority back. And when it comes to education, you know, it's really about just being hands-on and person-to-person -person learning. And, and again, trying to make better humans. And so, um, you know, I'm just so, so saddened by the education system. Uh, and I'm really saddened for the children right now. This has been a massive experiment. Um, and it's, 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 it's all on it's all on their shoulders right now. So we have a big responsibility before us, and I, I don't want to let them down. None on my watch. So obviously, 
good, uh, well-educated children turn into well-educated workers in your economy. Um, you had talked about this with the Infrastructure Bank. What's your principles moving forward with the economy and business? Because we know California is not particularly business-friendly. So what is your uh, your plan for the economy and the businesses here in California? Good question. Well, it's, it's very much tied into the cost of living. So first and foremost, um, when it comes to the taxes, we're being absolutely bled dry. We are the most taxed state in the United States. We see very little of this money. In fact, I've lost track of how many hundreds of millions of dollars that have been um, promised for the homeless, promised for their forest restoration. And we don't see the money. The money's going somewhere, but it's not going to what it was earmarked for. So I think to really start this, what we need to do is a massive third party certified financial and operational audit on the biggest offenders, the biggest budgets. And we start there because the best thing we can do is stop the hemorrhage, reduce the taxes. So I'm not saying we're getting rid of all the different programs and pro uh, projects and agencies that we might be able to, we might find out they're not that necessary, not doing anything. But the objective is to, is to reduce all of the, the need, the overhead for the taxes to begin with by auditing. So then right there, you lower that. Once you lower that down, then guess what? The cost of living goes down because if you're paying for more for taxes, guess who pays for that? The customers, the Californians. Mm -hmm. I mean, who do you think is paying for those taxes? In the end, it's always the customers, right? So whether you're going and buying a home or you're buying products for your home or, or you're buying putting food on the table, it's going to cost more because you're paying higher in taxes. So let's just lower the taxes all the way around. And then the other thing is, too, is to, is to reboot, reboot the local regional economies because it's so important to have these local economies where the dollar is circulating. It's called the economic multiplier effect, right? If you have local businesses, that means it's going to the, you know, the publisher, it's going to the editor, it's going to the, uh, you know, the, 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 the contractor, the da, 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 right? And that dollar is circling around and around in the economies. That's really healthy for a vibrant economy. So what we're doing is we're outsourcing all of our business. And so I've been saying to people, what COVID has taught us is at this point in time, the global economy that we had before this, like, you know, order something the next day it's here. That's not going to be what it used to be. And so we have to go from being generations of what we were many years ago. We were gener generations of producers. Then we were transitioned into generators of consumers, generations of consumers. And that was by design, right? All of the manufacturing, all the stuff was exported for cheap labor, no environmental regulations, right? No red tape. And we became consumers. Well, that's just not going to fly any longer. So we've got to actually look at our world and say, okay, what are my skills? What are my assets? What can I produce? How can I go from being a consumer to being a producer? It might be a skill. Uh, it might be something you grow or you make, right? Or you want to go out there and you want to educate yourself and, and learn that skill. So there's that. Um, and then the other thing is too around cost of, of living. Housing is a real huge one. And, you know, we've got to cut back on all the red tape at the expense of just breaking ground to start building in the first place. But even more importantly, I think it'd be really smart with the building materials and start actually talking about that. Like, look at how do we actually start using building materials that fit the actual respective area? Like, for instance, up in this area, I'm in a stick building. Great. With these forests ready to burn down at any moment. Why not hempcrete? Why not super adobe? Why not cob? Why not really encourage and educate people on these alternative uh, you know, building materials that are more locally resourced? Um, that are better for fighting against fires, that are actually cheaper. You can make smaller and a lot, lot, lot cheaper. And so there's a lot that we can be doing. And I say to folks, the only reason why this is not being done is because of the leadership or the lack thereof. So again, start at the top, reduce the taxes, 
stimulate the local economies, bring the jobs back. And we can do a lot of that with the infrastructure bank by doing a lot of infrastructure jobs up and down the state, right? That creates this vitality. And then also look at how do we reduce the, the cost of living uh, around housing. And a lot of that you can do that by lowering the cost of building in the first place and then looking at what kind of materials we use to build our homes. You brought up homelessness, um, and homelessness is definitely tied in with housing and the economy and taxes um, as a result of people who cannot afford to live here in California. And you call it on your site a humanitarian crisis and that you will immediately declare a state of emergency. Can you go into what you would do under a state of emergency? Sure. Um, well, the, you know, the fact that we have 160,000 plus people in crises on our streets out of 40 million and we can't solve it is just beyond me. Um, so first and foremost, yes, declare a state of emergency around this humanitarian crisis. And then the next thing we do is we actually uh, do a triage essentially on the streets. So what we do is we go out there and as we're doing that triage, we also loosen the building codes around the buildings we already have. We have a lot of empty commercial buildings that are not being used because of COVID. Try to find some of these commercial buildings nearest to where the homeless are, so you're not exporting the homeless to another area, and actually retrofit them for mental uh, mental and, uh, facilities and drug rehabilitation centers for low-income housing, you know, for interim housing. While that's happening, that's when we conduct the triage on the streets, and we go and we connect with the continuum of cares. Many counties have these continuum of cares, which is basically a, a, a table, a circle of many of the, the local uh, agencies and nonprofits and so on that come together per county. So you get together with the continuum of cares, you get together with the, um, the, 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 health, the housing and the shelters, the homeless shelters, and you pull the data and you do a triage and you identify who is most at risk to themselves and their surrounding businesses and residences. And then you get them off the streets and you put them into these facilities for wraparound services so they can actually start to reclaim their lives. They're in crises. And when I hear people say, oh, they're choosing to be there, it's their right to be there. Most of them are completely drugged up or drunk, or psychologically not even, they don't even know where they are, they're in a crisis. It's our responsibility to take care of them and get them the services they need. Then we have those who are just down on their luck. They've lost their home, their house, they're living in an RV, they're living in their car. And so we need to also get them into the interim housing and identify what kind of jobs do they want, get them the skills that they need, and then help them find the jobs and land a place to live. Now, I have had people saying, you know, how are you gonna get everyone off the streets? You can't, that's not legal. It is legal if we give them a place to live. And this is by a Supreme Court decision. So there's many beautiful models out there. One of my favorites is a place called um, Haven, uh, Haven for Hope. And it's actually in San Antonio, Texas. And they have 22 acres. And in that 20, 22 acres of wooded area, they in the very center have this incredible center of nonprofits, over 180 different nonprofits. It's kind of like one-stop shopping for the homeless. And the reason why they're doing this is as a homeless individual, somebody who's without a house, they many times don't have a car, they don't have money, don't even know what day it is, for them to go across town to get to an appointment or go here to get this or their drugs or medication, they don't have that capacity. That's not even realistic. So by having all these nonprofits in one central location, that those who are homeless actually have access. Now they can go in, they'll get the food, they'll have a bed to sleep in, right? Um, and then if they don't want to, that's okay. You can actually take your tents, you can take your tarps, and you have 22 acres of wooded area to camp in. But you can no longer camp on the streets. You can't camp under the, the bridges. We're going to give you a place and you can stay there until the day you want to no longer be homeless or the day you just are no longer on the earth. But you can't be out on the streets any longer. 
And if you so choose at any time you want to go into the center and receive those services, it's available to you. Uh, I want to touch upon two, they're kind of interrelated and it's agriculture and an issue that I found that California has completely screwed up, leave it to California to screw up a golden opportunity. And that's the cannabis industry. Um, I did some work uh, early on in my legal career trying to work with clients, setting up cannabis businesses and get them through the licensing. Um, But I have found that the business is basically dried up, that a lot of people who came to me, I would tell them the realities. I would say, unless you have three to five million dollars in the bank, there's no way you're starting any cannabis business. Um, And we I feel like we've dropped the ball on a golden opportunity that could have been, in your words, on a green renaissance, that could have been a huge booming economic sector of our economy alongside agriculture, which I believe we also need to help and not forget about our farmers. Um, so whichever one you want to start with. Right. Okay, let's start talking about cannabis. So I was actually on the city council when we were working on the cannabis ordinance. It is the most punitive, egregious, red tape filled piece of work I've ever seen. I have never in my life seen something that was just so over the top ridiculous. And it's because of people's fear. They're like, oh, we're going to bring in these dispensaries. We're going to bring in these labs, these businesses, these boutiques. And um, and we're going to break out in lawlessness. Well, that has, we now have a, a, a dispensary here in downtown Nevada City. We're the first in this county to do this um, and leave it to a tiny little town like ours to pull it off. But we did. Everyone else just stood around to see how we were going to do and do all the heavy lifting. And that dispensary uh, pretty much saved, that saved us as far as during this last two years with the downturn in the economy. Now, what it has proven to us is that we've actually had no issues whatsoever. It's been actually really wonderful. Um, I have no doubt. And let me tell you, I saw a lot of um, discrepancies and a lot of foul play behind the scenes of building and identifying who the dispensary was going to be. There's a lot of, I'm sure, money exchanging hands. But I knew then that these ordinances and the red tape were there by design to destroy the mom and pop industries and even the mid-size, mid-level cannabis businesses to make room for the Marlboros and Big Pharma to come in and absolutely capture that industry. And here we are a few years later, and we do have all these mom and pop businesses that have just fallen to the wayside. The farmers are gone. The land has lost value. Um, but even more importantly, the, even the, the multi-million dollar businesses who had a little bit of money to do something, they too are not surviving. This is 100% by design. So what they did is very much like other legislation, they say, oh, this is what we're going to do. It's going to be fantastic. But they designed it in such a way that it's actually going to destroy the very industry it should be supporting. And that's where we are today. So now when it comes to farming, um, you know, we know the monocrops aren't good. We have, we go up and down the farmlands. What's happening is that we've targeted the farmers and we're saying, oh, they're taking all of our water and we can't have them, uh, allow them to have any more water to grow our food. It's insane. What they're not telling you is that, yeah, the, can the farmers be better, more efficient and conserve more water? Of course they can, sure. But are they the reason? Not at all. We don't talk about the data centers. We don't talk about the big industries. Data centers like Facebook, Google, right? In the cloud, that takes tons and tons of water to cool all of their computers. And that water just disappears. Hmm. We should be capturing that evaporated water and that steam, right? And recycling it, but we're not. So they're burning off all this water 
for all of our cloud services out there, for all of our computers, right, for the internet, while the farmers are being targeted and these big corporations coming in, the Black Rocks, the Blackstones, the Vanguards, and the farmers can't farm, and these businesses are coming in, scooping them up pennies on the dollar and taking their water rights simultaneously. This too is by design. So, um, so if we can have the infrastructure bank, one of the best things we can do to conserve water and to make sure that these are actually viable, productive farms is we have many examples out there where farmers have gone out onto the land that is absolutely fallowed. It's not soil. It's just dirt. And what they've done is they've transitioned into, uh, you know, into something that is more regenerative farming. And what it does, it imitates the earth. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a closed loop system essentially, right? So you use farm animals and you rebuild the topsoil and you use your plants. You don't, you know, you use your food waste and, and, and it's a closed loop system that really, that, that makes it all encompassing and you're not dependent upon outside chemicals and other things, you know, and which costs a lot of money and is now not very available. And it greatly decreases. We're talking like 50% of your water usage while increasing your yield, your production yield by hundreds and hundreds of percent. Uh, so I've actually been with the farmers. I've seen their books. I've seen their, you know, their PNL, and and they're using much less water, and their yield is far, far, far greater. So that's where the infrastructure bank should be, where they can help these big agriculture farms, the big ag monocrops, go in, get the education, use the California Conservation Corps, by the way, to help them, have them come in, help them in the transition, use the infrastructure bank to actually finance it and also help them with that little transition time into being more sustainable and more regenerative as well. And so right now there is a war. There is a full-on war against our farmers. They're coming for our water and they're also going after our housing stock as well. Last item I wanted to touch upon, um, and I put your site at the at the bottom here of the video, so if anybody wants to go and read everything, there's a lot to read there, it's um, very comprehensive, is energy itself. And um, even down here, the first hot day we had here in San Diego, I was in the middle of work, it was 3 o'clock, power went completely out, um, which you would think in a major metropolitan city in the United States of America should never happen, but because it got a little hot, probably about 78 degrees, power went out, and that was it. I was done with work for the day. So Yeah, we're being held hostage by these energy companies, and I'm just not going to mince any words. I consider uh, like PG&E to be nothing short of a terrorist organization, and I wish I was kidding. But interestingly enough, PG&E was actually signed into existence about four blocks from me here in downtown Nevada City. And um, they are actually whiplashing us, and instead of taking the money – uh, uh, and actually, you know, investing it into hardening the lines, uh, into, you know, making sure they, they're uh, cleaning out the forests and restoring them and so on. And, and, and um, you know, uh, ensuring that we actually have really good, strong power poles and so on, and also insulating them. They're sending all that money off to their shareholders on Wall Street. So this is, this is all because of them. The reason why we're having power outages is because of their greed, is because they are a monopoly. Same as Southern, uh, Southern uh, Edison. And, and they need to be broken up. And Newsom had the ability just a few years ago to break them up when PG&E, I should say, was in a bankruptcy. He was talking all tough. But of course, PG&E is a huge funder, big donor for his campaign. So he didn't touch them with a 10-foot pole. These monopolies should not be allowed. We should be decentralizing our whole entire energy grid. We should be having uh, joint power authorities where we have different regions, according to the geography, create their own power grid, they produce their own energy, and they can take that money, that surplus money, and reinvest it back into watershed and forest restoration. They can reinvest it back into 
right? Uh, hardening up the, the, the whole entire grid. And also, I really want to see a renaissance around energy as well, because right now we're so dependent upon fossil fuels, even though uh, Biden, of course, has just eviscerated that and he's sending us into a hellhole because of his, leader, his leadership. Um, but while we're on fossil fuels, we should be actually going out there and, and really pushing uh, research and development and getting to market uh, zero point energy, right? Using magnets, right? There's all these different things that we know the oil companies have been purchasing. You can see there's many documentaries and, and books on this. They've been purchase, purchasing these Nikola Tesla type products, right? And, and, and shelving them, right? We have, we have like bullet planes, bullet paint, uh, trains in J Japan and China. They're using magnets. And so this is the stuff that we absolutely need to explore. And I want to encourage that. And so it's not just like a, it's like we've got one answer. It's like it's a it's a series of silver BBs, essentially. But as it currently stands, these power companies, no doubt, are holding us hostage. And the fact that they're turning off our power so simply like that, uh, it sounds like we're more like in a third world country. And how dare they do that to us? It's absolutely criminal. Criminal. Yeah, and even down here is we have SDG&E. And without warning, I think it was January, we saw our electric bill double just in one month and they said well it's because of covid it's because of all these yeah. different things and yeah. the supply yeah. chain and all that um, but it doubled and our mayor of course who shrugged his shoulders at one point he he patted himself on his on the back for signing a great deal with sdg and e and then when this happened he goes he turns around and goes well i i have nothing to, i have no control over sdg and e so he's talking out both sides of his mouth it's um, they're in bed with the, 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 like you're saying, they're in bed with these energy companies. But then when the energy companies are bad for the people, they turn around and go, oh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I have no control over that. So, well, and now they're trying to push onto us these whole entire, you know, smart cities, um, the carbon tax and, um, saying, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're going to tackle, you know, climate change by doing all this stuff. I'm like, you want to, tackle climate change, then build your topsoil. Actually, rebuilding your top, topsoil is a great way to create carbon sinks and put the water back into the soil and the forest and to recharge the aquifers. And so when I hear that these, these power companies, Qualcomm, which is in your area, right, mm -hmm. um, and, and the technocrats, Silicon Valley, they want us to be in this whole digital, you know, ID passport where you can't go anywhere, do anything without them knowing everything and basically essentially controlling everything you do. So... I'm telling people, this is why you need to vote in the primary. We're talking in just a few days. The trajectory of your life is going to be set in a certain direction. And within that envelope of your ballot contains your future. And if you don't check off a few boxes and make some real clean, educated decisions, yeah, I'm going to do what I'm going to do to help the state, but it's going to make it a lot harder for all of us. And so this whole smart cities is, is the answer. It's not the answer. It's, it's, if you want to know what we're going to look like, just look at, you know, look at, you know, uh, uh, what's happening right now in China? Look at their lockdowns. Look at their their whole entire um, uh, what's it called uh, credit system, right? Social credit system. If you're on the wrong websites, if you're associating with the wrong people, if you're with the wrong party affiliation, uh, anything like that, your credit service, your credit score goes down, and you can't go on planes or trains or leave your apartment or go to college or get a loan. Your life, you are in an open air prison, and that's what our government. That's what the entities like. Qualcomm, that is like the technocrats and Silicon Valley, the Bill Gates, the Soros, the World Economic Forum, the, the Klaus Schwab. This is what 
they all want. And they're using COVID as the excuse to break us, economically break us, destroy us from the inside out, death by a thousand cuts is the art of war, while putting in you know, the problem reaction solution, oh, the solution is the digital pass, the digital passport. And that's how we're going to solve all this. And oh, by the way, you're all going to live in smart cities and be radiated by, you know, 5G millimeter wave, which by the way, San Diego Union Tribune would not actually let me emphatically put there that the millimeter wave is actually very unhealthy for you. They actually maybe retract that. Well, I think we got a lot covered in <laughs> yeah. this episode. Uh, we were chatting beforehand and we talked about like a, with the time limit and it's about, yeah, you know, I said I, at minimum, I like to hit 40 minutes um, about an hour. And I said, <laughs> I don't think we'll have any trouble hitting an hour. So um, final points, where can people find you um, and learn more about you? Elect or Renette. So, of course, it's E-L-E-C-T, elect. And then Renette is R-E-I. N-E-T-T-E-R-E-I-N-E-T-T-E.com, electronet.com. Yeah, please spread the word. Please go out there, find people who are not voting, tell them how important it is. Yes, I do need donations because we are not, we do not have any big uh, corporate donors whatsoever or NGOs giving us money. And, um, and, and let people know this is the most important election in the history of California and most people don't even know. So I just want to say thank you to you for, for making this, this time and the space available for me to, to reach the people I can't because I'm being so censored. So thank you. Well, glad you came on. It was a great conversation. So yeah. to everyone else for tuning in, thanks for tuning in. As always, as I always like to say at the end of these episodes, if you enjoyed it, text one person and let them know that you enjoyed this episode and share it with them. Uh, if you want to support the platform, you can go check out merchandise, Patreon, and all that stuff. Um, and that's basically it. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks a lot, Renat. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 